Let's go ahead and take our Bibles. We're going to open to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. As we continue through our study there, we find ourselves in verses 11 through 16. It says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You know, years ago when, when my kids were all quite small, Lisa and I went through a parenting class. But we learned some of the foundations of, of parenthood and we learned some practical things that put in place as well. Just within the first week or two, it, it changed the atmosphere in our house. The program was called Growing Kids God's Way. And it was just a great program for our family to go through. And it really benefited us to know how to function together as a family, uh, as part of God's family. Well, the reason I bring that up this morning is because that's kind of what we're getting in the book of Ephesians when we come to this point in chapter 4, is we're getting this same kind of instruction, but it's not how to conduct ourselves in our own individual families as much as it is how are we supposed to conduct ourselves in God's family. As parents, in dealing with your children, you're concerned about growth. You want them to be growing in different ways. In fact, way back when my kids were little, I remember taking on kind of the, the verse about Jesus, Luke 2.52, about how Jesus grew. He grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And we kind of took that as our philosophy for our children, that we wanted our children to be growing intellectually in wisdom and in stature physically. We wanted to make sure they were healthy physically and growing that way. And we wanted to make sure that they were growing both spiritually and socially as well as Jesus grew in favor with God and with man. Well, it's the same within God's household as well. God wants His children to be healthy. And He wants His family unit to be healthy. And so that's what He's dealing with with Ephesians. When you get to chapter 4, is He's laying out for them how His family functions how it grows. And in verse 16, it says that it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So God wants His family to be growing, growing healthier. And that's what this passage is all about. And that's what we're considering this morning is growing God's family. How exactly does God's family grow? And what does it mean for it to grow? What does it look like when it's experiencing good growth? And, and you know, usually when we talk about church growth, we're often talking about the church growing in numbers. That's really not the focus here this morning. Now, the church should grow in numbers, just as like when you're a little child, if you get a healthy diet and a healthy amount of exercise, your body is just going to grow in size and stature. And a healthy church should be the same way. If the church is healthy, if it's growing closer in its walk with God, it should grow in size as well. But the focus is really on the health of the church when it talks about the growth of it within the passage that we're looking at here this morning. So as we look at it this morning, God wants His church, His body, the body of Christ, to grow. And so He's put in place a program or a plan to do that. Now the plan that He lays out, He starts talking about these gifts. And He doesn't list them all. If you go to other passages like in Corinthians, it'll list a larger list of gifts that are there. 
the Apostle Paul here in the book of Ephesians doesn't list all that many gifts. He just kind of lists the foundationally functional gifts. Some of these are around today and some of them have already passed off the scene. He kind of picks up where he left off. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, if you remember, he talked about us being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so he had already started to talk about this a little bit in chapter 2 of Ephesians. And he talked about how Jews and Gentiles are all being built together. Because remember he said there was that dividing wall of hostility that was there before. That's been broken down. And now he wants the, the family all to grow together and we're built upon this foundation of the apostles and prophets. Well, in Ephesians chapter 4, he picks up in that place. And now he's going to start to focus on those gifts a little bit. What are they? He says he gave some apostles. And then he gave prophets. And then he gave shepherds. It means pastor. And teachers. He says, this is what I did for my church to make it grow the way that I want it to grow. To accomplish what I want it to do. I gave it gifts. Gifts that are going to help it to grow. And as I mentioned, there's more complete lists of gifts in other passages, but he just kind of starts with the foundational ones here in this passage. He says, the first gift I gave the church was the apostles. Now these first two, the apostles and prophets, they were foundational gifts, as he said in chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians. But as you look at the idea of the building, the foundation is laid once, and it's the very base of it. We're up somewhere higher up in the structure. I don't know where we're at. You know, maybe we're a second floor, third floor. Maybe we're in the roof system getting close to the end. A lot of times it looks like that to us, doesn't it? But uh, at any rate, we're not the foundation anymore. And that's why when you look at through the New Testament, you find that the apostles, they were kind of a one and done kind of an office. Now, there are two different ways to use the word apostle. The apostle was used in more of a generic sense. The word means a messenger. It means somebody who's sent on a mission. And so sometimes it'll use that describing different people other than the twelve apostles. Uh, uses it of Barnabas, for example, in one, in one place or another. And so uh, it can use that just as the idea of this person's an apostle, a sent one. But you know what? Whenever it's not referring just to the twelve, it usually calls them an apostle like of a church, somebody that's a, a messenger from a church. Whenever it deals with the twelve, it always calls them apostles of Jesus Christ, that they were people that were sent with a mission from Christ himself. And that's an important distinction. We also see that the office of apostle faded out. As the apostles died, they weren't replaced. The last time that we see the word used in the book of Acts, which is kind of the history book of the early church, is in Acts chapter 16 and verse 4. And the word's not used anymore after that. But what you do find being mentioned or being used is the office of these pastors and teachers that would facilitate the growth of the church after that. Now, that's the generic use of the word apostle. Specifically, the apostle was those 12. Judas, obviously, when he killed himself, they found a scripture passage that said that they should replace him, and so they replaced him. And then after that, that was one more added, the Apostle Paul. But even he said that he was one as kind of abnormally born. He was different, distinct from all the other apostles in a couple of ways. One, because he was the apostles to the Gentiles, where the others were the apostles to the Jews, to Jerusalem. Secondly, not only that he was the apostle to the Gentiles, but he was, he was abnormally born because his seeing Christ risen from the dead came later. Dealing with a specific sense, an apostle was somebody that was chosen by Christ. They're an apostle of Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 3 and verses 13 and 14 says that when he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. And so Jesus himself picked 
his apostles for this certain task to be the foundation of the church. But then not only that, we also see the time in in the book of Acts chapter 1, they decided that it was time they needed to replace Judas. But here's the qualifications. One of the men whom accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So when they did replace Judas, and this is the last time you see an apostle replaced, when they did replace him, there was two qualifications. He had to have been somebody that was with them from the time that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist all the way up through his whole ministry. They had to be there for everything. And then second, that they were a witness of his resurrection because that was their job. They had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. And from that, there were only two people that fit the bill, and it was from those two that they chose one. And so, what was an apostle? An apostle was the foundation layer of the church. Because they're the foundational layer, and because they're the ones that were completing the giving of the New Testament, it was through them and those connected to them, uh, miracles accompanied them. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. He's writing to them, and they have people among them that are claiming to be apostles. We touched on that last week in dealing with unity, how that there were people that were false apostles and they were teaching another Jesus, another gospel, and the Apostle Paul is combating them and he writes back and he says, look, when we were among you, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you. In other words, with this apostolic ministry that God was accomplishing within the church at the time was the accompaniment of miracles because the miracles were God's stamp of approval that these are my apostles. This is the foundation of the church. This is the truth. And so that's what we continue to do today. We continue to study the teaching of the apostles as it's recorded for us in the New Testament. And we continue to study that. It was confirmed by those miracles. In fact, in the writer of Hebrews in chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4 says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. These were people, they were eyewitnesses, and the Holy Spirit also was bearing witnesses through the miracles. And so the apostles and prophets were accompanied by miracles as they laid the foundation of the church. And they need to be kept in that order also. The, the prophets submitted to the authority of the apostles. We find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 37 and 38. The Apostle Paul says, If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So he said the prophets were in submission underneath the apostles in proclaiming the words of God. Otherwise, they would not be recognized as, as, a, as a prophet unless they were under submission to the apostles and their teaching. So he starts off saying, look, here's the foundation layer that God put in place. As God gifted the church, he gifted us with the apostles and, fr- and the prophets. And from the apostles and prophets, we get the completion of the New Testament, the word of God. But then he goes on from there, and he says he also gave us evangelists. Now, evangelists, to, to evangelize, to spread the gospel, is what that word means. It's somebody that shares the good news. It's like the idea of a missionary. If you think of a missionary or a church planter, uh, that is what it means by the, the office of, a, of an evangelist. Well, that part of the office, that continues. We no longer have the apostles. We have the teaching of them. And that's why in the New Testament you don't find any guidelines for how to replace an apostle. And then he goes on and he says... 
the pastors and teachers. And, and this could be referring to one role or it could be breaking it up because the word teacher is often used in the New Testament as somebody that teaches. But uh, they're also closely linked in this passage. They're linked by the word chi in the Greek language. That word can mean and or it can mean like even. In other words, you're expanding on the idea. And so many people think that when it says that it's ta- uh, that God has given us pastors or, or shepherds, even teachers, that it's describing a role that they have or a function that they have as pastors. And that could be the case because um, in other places in the New Testament, you do find that teaching is a solid part of what the pastor does as he cares for the sheep and watches over the flock of God. Now, in the New Testament, it can be a little bit confusing because there's lots of different words that it uses to describe the office of a pastor. In the New Testament, you'll find that there's a word elder that's often used in the role of a pastor. There's the word poimen, shepherd, which is in this passage that we're dealing with here today. There's the word for bishop. It's translated bishop in First Timothy chapter 3. It's the word episkopos in the Greek language. It means to be an overseer. And the word for elder is the word presbuteros, which focuses kind of on the age or the maturity level of the leadership in the church. There's also other words that deal more like with didaskalos, being teacher, kerux, being preacher or to herald or proclaim. So there's lots of different words that describe the function of this one office, but it really does describe one office. We see that with the use of those words interchangeably throughout the New Testament. First Peter deals with the three main words for that, elder, bishop, and shepherd. He deals with all three of them in the same passage, all talking about the same person. Notice in First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it says, So I exhort the elders, that's the word presbuteros, among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, exercising oversight. Elders, presbuteros, um, oversight, episkopos, which is translated bishop in 1 Timothy, and poimen, shepherd the flock of God, which is what we usually use that idea of pastor right there. And so all three of the words are describing the exact same thing. He says, look, I'm an elder, just like you're an elder. So do what you're supposed to do. Shepherd, pastor, the church, taking the oversight of it, being the bishop. And so you know what? A lot of churches and their denominations and stuff today, a bishop is somebody that's not a pastor. He's like higher up the food chain, uh, overseeing maybe a group of churches or something like that. That's completely unbiblical use of the word. Biblically, bishop, elder, pastor, it's all the same thing. And so as we look at these different gifts that he spells out, we have the foundational gifts, the apostles and prophets that have that have ceased. And then we have the continuing gifts of the missionaries, church planters, pastors, teachers that continue within the church. And notice the plan here. The plan is Jesus gifted the church with these offices, with these functions within the church, but for a purpose. He says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints that's my job. My job is to equip, equip the saints. Now, what is, what is the saints? You know, there's some institutions and some in, in, in society that would have you to believe that a saint is somebody who's like some super Christian. You've reached a certain level, uh, pinnacle. It's not the case. A saint is anybody that's sanctified to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, it's a believer. It's a Christian. Every Christian is a saint. And it says in here that, that my job, the role of a pastor, is to equip the saints to teach them. That's my job. My job is to teach you, to build you up, to strengthen you, to, to try to give you what you need so that you can do what you need to do. And he doesn't go into the rest of the gifts and stuff like that, but all of us have are gifted in one way or another. And we're all supposed to use our gifts within the body of Christ for this body to function. In fact, notice what it says here. There's, a, there's kind of a chain of things here. He says, 
to equip the saints for work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity. And he goes on into the next thing there. So he says, here's how it works. I equip you so that you can minister, so that you can do your work of service. Specifically, I'm a pastor. But we're all ministers. In fact, some churches have even made it their slogan, every member a minister. Because, you know, when it comes to the ministry of the church, the ministry of the body of Christ, that happens through all of us. I'm only one part of the body. And the ministry of the body, the functioning of the body, takes all of the members. It takes all of the parts of the body, all ministering and serving together. You're the ministers. I'm the pastor, so it's my job to equip you. I got a good picture of this when I was in construction back in Washington. There was a superintendent in the company. And you know what he did? He went around before all of us got to the job. He had the job lined up and he made sure that the, that the builder already had the foundation in and he made sure that they had power supply there and he made sure that the lumber was being delivered before we got there so that when we got there, the foundation was in, the power was there, the lumber was there. And he made sure we had the plans before we got there. But you know what? That's kind of the picture that he's given of the church. In the church, he's saying, look, I got these pastors and teachers that are equipping you. Who's actually carrying on the ministry in the church? You. All of us. It is a whole body function. He says, Every joint supplies. Every ligament is involved. He says this is a whole body function. And if we're missing any part of the... Then we're limping. Then we're not, we're not doing what we could do as a church. But I spent some time this week thinking through what would our church ministry look like if we actually accomplished what it said in this passage? If every part of the church was functioning with its gifts, using its gifts that God has given to it, What kind of an impact would that make in our services? What kind of an impact would that make in our church ministry? What impact would that make in our community? Reading some articles and things about it, they say that typically about 20% of the church does 80 to 100% of the work. And in a church, you always have people at different places. You have people that are seriously involved and and participating in different ministries and, and faithfully there. And then you have people that are there half the time. People that are involved, people that aren't so involved. If you could have everybody engaged, everybody involved, everybody, that doesn't mean you're going to teach a Sunday school class or something like that. There's only so many people that are going to do that. But you know what? There's a lot of ways of encouragement and strengthening and reaching out to other people. Man, the ministry you can have. If we're going to experience that, the church has to get away from the idea of who's a minister and who's not. We are all ministers. We're either good at it or we're not, but we're all ministers in God's plan. God says that I have some very visible leaders But their job is to give you what you need. Their job is to equip you, teach you, strengthen you, so that you have what you need to be able to use your gifts to reach out and minister, to serve within the body. The whole body functioning together, growing together. Well, not only do we see the plan, but then he lists within it his priority. And the priority, firstly, is unity. Remember, that's the context that he started in. That we're supposed to maintain this unity, be eager to maintain this unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Well, now this is going to start to flesh out. He says, for the building up of the body of Christ till we all attain, in verse 13, to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, notice the word the is kind of important here. There's a couple different ways to use the word faith. One of the ways to use for faith is to talk about your level of commitment, that you're committed. That's not the use of the word here. The faith means that there's a content to this faith. There's a package of truth that defines what this faith is. That's why teaching is so important. Because in teaching, we learn what the content of our faith is. The faith is a body of knowledge. And it must be believed and accepted and lived in 
for us to be part of the faith. Very closely related to it is the second point that he makes. He says, in the knowledge of the Son of God. What is the job here? What, what are we aiming for? That as I teach you and build you up and we work together functioning as a body of Christ, that we experience this unity of truth, this unity of the faith, this unity in understanding who the Son of God is and what it means to be in Christ and how we live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've received. Paul would leave Timothy in Ephesus for three years to try to help the church to get on its, on some good footing. And he would write to him in chapter 1 and tell him, I urge you then, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that ensues a love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So the Apostle Paul says, look, when I left you in Ephesus, it was for a reason. There's a lot of people that are claiming to be teachers that are, that are making a lot of astounding, confident claims that are absolutely baloney and you need to put a stop to it. There needs to be a unity to the faith, a unity in our knowledge of the Son of God. That's what needs to form our unity. In Second Timothy, when he writes back to him again, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. Now, based on what he just said about the Bible, that it is the God-breathed, it is the Word of God, because of that it's useful in our life, Then he turns to Timothy at the very beginning of chapter 4, which is the next verse, and he says, now use it. Use the Word of God in that way. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Timothy's left there to get the church in order, to stabilize it, and to get it strengthened, to get it ready for what we're talking about in Ephesians. Getting it ready for them to be able to work together, to function together as a body. In order for that to happen, Timothy had to accomplish something. He had to accomplish sound doctrine. He had to bring solid teaching in. He needed to put an end to the people that were teaching a bunch of foolishness. And he said, look, enough with that stuff. Let's get into the solid teaching of the Word of God. That's what will strengthen us. That's what gives us what we need to be able to function the way we need to as the body of Christ. And so the priority, one, is a unity. A unity of understanding the truth. But his second priority is that of maturity. He says, until we all maintain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. He says the priority here is unity and maturity. We need to grow in our faith. You know, I remember when I was new in my faith, about anything that came across the pike, I was, well, is that true? Is that true? (laughs) 
You know, and I remember my pastor was an important part of my life at that time. I, I bounced a lot of questions off of that guy and learned a lot of things from him. Because I'd read something in a book or hear something on the radio and it would get me thinking. And, you know, within Christianity, within any, anywhere in the world, you get all the kinds of different ideas floating around out there. They don't all have equal merit or value. I remember in a church we were at out in Washington, there's one dear old guy who I love dearly. He's gone home to be with the Lord now. But he'd get watching these televangelists during the week. This guy was, was basically selling, uh, Homer Hankies, but it wasn't the twins at the time. It was, he was selling these prayer shawls. I watched one with him. He, he bought some CDs from the guy and had me watch him. And I watched him. And this guy was talking about the prayer shawl and the meaning of the prayer shawl. And, and man, uh, Elijah had the prayer shawl when he hit the river and the waters parted. And, and, and they would have had the prayer shawl here when they did this. And they, he put the prayer shawl all over the Bible through the whole thing. And then for your generous donation, I'll send you one that I've prayed over. And I got this lovely man that's a great guy just trying to be faithful to God and live out his faith, but he's just confused by that stuff. And you know what? That's what the passage says. He says, every wind that blows by, every wind of doctrine. You know, when you look back through some of our even more recent history of the church, it's not always pretty. I think of the holy laughter movement, this idea that the Holy Spirit would take over in you and the sign of you being filled with the Holy Spirit was this busting out in uncontrollable laughter. You'll find that nowhere in Scripture. It's so foolish. We still have ministries going on in, in this country where they will tell you that if you have faith, you're going to drive new cars and live in new homes and everything is just going to go the health and wealth gospel. And it is absolutely false. But you can find ministries like that and there there is somebody driving new cars and living in bigger houses. They're raking in the money from people that are being carried along by that wind of doctrine. But when you look at which of the apostles were wealthy, which of the apostles had a life of ease and everything go their way? None of them. The Bible teaches us that actually by living for Christ faithfully, you probably expect your life to get a little harder rather than a little easier. But there's so many wins. How did a book like The Shack ever get used for a Bible study in a church? But I know that it was. Not in ours, but it was. The Shack who goes completely against some of the teaching of God. I tried to be honest with you. Maybe it's not a fair hearing because I didn't get through the whole book. I like Wilkerson a little bit, but the prayer of Jabez, take one sentence out of the Bible and write a whole book on it. The church can be easily duped sometimes. There's so many, there's so many winds that blow. There's so many fads that come through. And, and, you know, solid ground is the place to be. And that's exactly what was happening in Ephesus when the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy. He said there's these fads, there's these genealogical things and these myths that they're talking about. And, and he says, just put an end to all that stuff. Solid teaching. That's what we need. Why? Because it, it brings maturity. When you get to the point in your faith when the fads just kind of bounce off you because you're like, God, oh, yeah, that ain't it. What is it? Living out your faith in love. Holding on to that great hope. Well, what are the signs of maturity? Because he gives us some as we look through the passage. What does maturity produce in our life? The first thing it produces is stability. Because as we said, the winds of all these doctrines aren't going to affect you. The fads that come through, the new method for church growth, the new key to your spiritual life, they're not going to, have, they're not going to cause you to go this way and that way. You're going to be more stable. It's also going to bring balance. Because he mentions within the passage, he talks about speaking the truth in love. It's a balance of those two things. Neither should be without the other. If we try to have truth without love, then we have, we're just harsh. But if we try to have love without truth, we'll be hollow. The two of the things need to go together. We need to speak the truth. We need to do it in a loving way. And we need to do it with loving motives. The goal in speaking the truth is reconciliation and salvation. It's not judgment. So there's balance. There's also resemblance. Because it talks about us growing up into the full measure of Christ. In other words, the better we get at this, the more mature we grow in our Christian faith, the more like Christ we're going to be, the more we're going to resemble Him. 
The last thing that it mentions about this maturity is that it will be seen in cooperation with one another. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. So he's given us this picture of the body and you've got all these body parts. And he says they're all joined together. We're all held together. We're all joined together. It says when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so God has a, God has a plan for us. He, God wants His house, His home, His children, His family to be healthy. He wants His family to grow. To do that, He's put together this plan. He gave us the foundational layer of the apostles and prophets. He gave us the ongoing ministries of missionaries and church planters and pastors and teachers so that the church can continue to spread and so that the church can continue to build off that solid foundation. The pastors and teachers equip the flock so that we all have what we need to be able to function as one. And when we get to the point where not one joint is left out, but they're all functioning together, they're all working together at the same time, then you'll see a force that this world doesn't know what to do with.